0: Thank you for that introduction, Dad. It's a it's a joy to be with you, uh, and to bring God's word again. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter nine, we'll be looking starting in verse twenty-two. And um, as we do, we have a long text today. Um, you'll be helped to follow along in your copy of God's word, and we'll have the text up on the screens, and you'll see highlights with the verses that were currently talking about. I'm not going to read through the whole thing at the beginning of this sermon, because you'll hear the whole thing as I preach through it. So if you would pray with me one more time, asking for the Lord's help in the proclaiming and the receiving of his word. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We know that without the power of the holy spirit we can't understand your word so come and give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might be that we might hear and be conformed to your image by what your word has to teach us today we pray in jesus name amen A couple of questions i want to want you to think about today as we're talking about this text why did jesus come to die In other words, what did he accomplish for his people through his ministry, through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back to heaven? What should Jesus' work make? What should it produce in our daily lives and walks of faith? So we're talking about verses from Hebrews 9 and 10. And let me set the context for you. We're not certain who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know that the audience is a congregation of professing Christians of predominantly Jewish background. They have heard the gospel and responded in faith towards Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, but then they face persecution and confusing teaching from Jewish leaders telling them that in order to be right with God, In order to maintain a relationship with God, they must continue in the Old Testament traditions like what we read from Leviticus. They must continue to offer animal sacrifices. They must continue to do all of the religious rituals that God commanded his people to do in the Old Testament. That's what they're being told and they're being persecuted for for not doing. This congregation of Jewish believers has been warned that without returning to the Old Testament form of worship, they should consider themselves outside of God's favor or outside of the community of His people. But then along comes the writer of the Hebrews, and he pens this letter, and he wants to show the Jews in this congregation how Jesus came to fulfill the forms of worship that God commanded in the Old Testament. And He he wants to substantiate to them that Jesus reigns superior to all the old heroes and all of the old priestly offices and to all of the sacrifices and to all of the old ways because Jesus has come to make a better way to God for His people that the Old Testament priests never could. Jesus offers a superior sacrifice to God through His death And he ministers as the eternal high priest over the house of God. So in response to these truths revealed and these promises that Jesus secured, we should not go back to the old ways. We should instead trust confidently in the work of Christ, holding fast our confession with confident faith. Because we have a Savior to whom all of the Old Testament ways were pointing. True worship of God comes through Jesus and His saving work because He has accomplished the true things that the Old Testament worship was only to copy. Sort of like a movie preview without the whole story unfolding. That's what the Old Testament worship was like. Now that the true Savior has arrived, why would we go back to the teaser trailer Instead, Jesus came to fulfill everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. And to go back would be to forfeit the actual forgiveness that Jesus actually accomplished through his work and fall into false teaching and into apostasy and counterfeit faith. This is the point of the book of Hebrews. So another way of looking at it may be just to imagine that you're imprisoned in a prison cell with one door. And then aside from that door, you've got 10 feet thick of concrete on all sides. And at one point, maybe the warden comes to you and says, okay, here's a nail file. If you can, if you can bore through this concrete 10 feet out to the free world, you're free. It's fine. And so you work and you work and you use that nail file. And of course it doesn't get you very get very far, and then one day the son of the warden says, okay, I'm just going to open the door, and you can leave, you're free. To go back to the old ways, if the warden's son is opening the door for you, is, to, is like saying, nah, I'm good with the nail file, I'm going to keep on with that. That's the point of Hebrews. So our big idea for today is, is that Jesus' work of salvation is fully accomplished for us, So that we can walk in victory over sin through full assurance of faith. Jesus' work of salvation is fully accomplished for us so we can walk in victory over sin and full assurance of faith. I'm going to take our outline for today straight from the text. In chapter 10 verses 19 through 23, he gives us a summary of everything that he just told us in chapters 9 and 10, which sort of forms the outline of what we're going to talk about today. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. So you see the outline there. First, Jesus secures a new and living way for us to God permanently. That's 9 verses 22 on to the end of chapter 9. Then Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice to God, removing sin completely. That's chapter 10 verses 1 through 10. And then Jesus ministers as our eternal high priest before God, securing our salvation. That's, that's 11 down through 18, and then how should we respond? We should draw near and hold fast with confident faith. That's 19 to 23 of chapter 10. I will tell you that the first point's a lot longer than the rest. So once we get through the first point, don't think that it's going to be equal time with the remaining ones. So, in each section, we're going to see sort of repeated themes, but each set of verses focuses primarily on one aspect of Christ's ministry and how it proves superior to the Old Testament forms in the preview. So, l- let me read for us our first verse, uh, Hebrews 9, verse 22, if you'll look down with me. We start with a principle articulated from the Old Testament that the Hebrews writer brings to us. So 9:22 indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. So we see the principle that carries over from the Old Testament. Under the law we see that first everything must be purified with blood and second without blood there is no forgiveness of sins. So what's happening here? How is the law instructing God's people? Well, the purpose of the law and the rituals in the Old Testament and the sacrificial system was to display God's holiness and hatred for sin. And as a result, the penalty for sin is death. When blood is shed, it represents that some or someone has died. So according to God's commands, when a human being commits sin, he or she owes a penalty of death to God. We read that in Leviticus. Why is that? It's because God is perfectly good. He's so purely good in his nature that it means that he's morally perfect. He's he's pure. The Bible tells us that he's three times holy. And God actually sets the definition for goodness and for holiness and for purity. He created all things so when God speaks and acts, he, things just come into existence. So this means that God can only do perfect good. It's impossible for God not to do perfect good. He can't not do good. He can't not show justice. So when we sin, when we, His creation, rebel against His commands and His ways, in thought or deed or intention, we break fellowship with this perfectly good God so that we can no longer relate to Him as friend or in peace. Instead, the Bible says that our sin makes us God's enemy. It creates an infinite gap between us and God so that The only way we can bridge that gap, the only way that fellowship can be restored is for our sin to be dealt with, for our death penalty to be paid. The holiness of God demands that because of our sin, we must die and face eternal judgment and hell for offending an infinitely holy God. The death penalty illustrates the perfection of God's justice because He can't overlook any sin. A death penalty must always be paid. So, but, be, but because God is love, because He is kind, because He's eager to extend mercy, God commands away in the Old Testament for sinful man at the time to be able to escape the death penalty that sin owes through the offering of a substitute, an animal sacrifice who will die in the place of the sinner. Shedding blood serves as a payment for sin. So we read that everything is purified with blood through the death of a spotless substitute and that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. The death of an unblemished bull or sheep or goat pays the penalty and it executes God's justice so that God temporarily passes over man's sin and His wrath towards sin is temporarily quenched because the substitute paid the death penalty. We read in Leviticus 16 that not only did blood need to be shed for the sins of the people, but for the priest himself, because he himself is a sinner, even as the representative between God or between the people and God. He himself required a blood sacrifice so that he could approach the presence of God and not die. But not only that, even inanimate objects in the in the form of worship that God commanded in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and all of these objects needed to be covered in blood. They all needed to be sprinkled with blood. Why? For purification. This is because God's hatred for sin is so great. His purity and holiness is so complete that if sinful... If a sinful priest entered into the presence of God and approached or handled any of these objects without blood, without the blood of a substitute, the priest would die because of the corrupting effect that sin creates in marring fellowship with God. So even for a priest, the only way that he can execute his duties in worship God without dying is for all of this blood to spill as a substitute and a payment for sin. The sacrifice only carries temporary effect, serving as the picture through which God will extend mercy to the sinner, and God offers salvation from physical death in those instances because an animal has died. So blood satisfies God's wrath through sin and purifies from the corruption of sin, at least until someone sins again. So it's on the basis of this principle articulated under the law that we then read in verse 23. Look down with me. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. The copies of are, are the earthly objects of worship in the tabernacle. But these verses suggest that for the tr- tr- there are true things Residing in heaven. The Old Testament worship only entailed copies of those true things. So, in other words, in the inner sanctum, in the holiest place in the tabernacle, it serves only as a mere copy of the throne room of God in heaven itself. The copies are yet just a cheap replica of the true things in heaven. So, when the priest enters on the Day of Atonement, God's presence is only faded. Veiled in thick smoke, as we read, from burning incense because the priest cannot look at God without dying. And the blood the priest spills is yet only the blood of a mere animal. So what's the point? In order to accomplish lasting, eternal effects for a better, more direct access to God than the priest enjoyed, we need better sacrifices so that we can actually enter into the presence of God in the better place of worship, which is heaven itself. Jesus accomplishes better, more eternal outcomes than what the law achieves. Verse 23B Look down at me down with me. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. If the provisions under the law only accomplished temporary purification from sin and temporary removal of God's wrath, temporary access to God with the priest only being able to to enter once per year, then when will someone come to offer better sacrifices? When will someone arrive who can deal with our sin? When will someone come who can represent us perfectly before God once and for all And when will someone come with a better sacrifice than mere animals so that even I, a dirty sinner, and not a priest, might be able to approach God myself? When will a better priest come who can advocate for me in heaven? Itself, in the actual presence of God, face to face. When will someone come with permanent solutions to my ongoing struggle with sin? This is what the entire sacrificial system under the law was meant to produce. A yearning for something or someone better who could provide more lasting solutions for the break in fellowship that sin forged between us and God. Enter Jesus Christ. Look down with me at verse 24, chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to address and overcome all of the weaknesses that the law alone left unaccomplished and unfulfilled. Jesus satisfies the yearning of God's people that the law was meant to produce. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, obedient life towards God, and He loved others perfectly and never sinned. And yet, we as creatures, we put Him to death on the cross, as we've heard so many times today during the service. He fully bore the wrath of God on the cross due our sin. And He served as the perfect spotless substitute. He was truly man, taking the death penalty for man's sin, and yet He also remained fully God, so that His body could fully absorb the full weight of hell that his people deserve for all of our countless sins. He died to exhaust all of God's wrath, and then and then raised again on the third day to show that God the Father had accepted his payment as, as full for the sin of his people. And then forty days later, he ascended back to heaven, where he, where he bodily entered God's throne room. Jesus presented himself as. The sufficient sacrifice whose blood purified the true objects of worship in heaven. Jesus' blood stains heaven's courts where God resides in full presence. Not so that Jesus himself would receive protection from God's anger. He bore that on the cross. No, but Jesus' blood serves to protect us, vile and unworthy sinners, so that we can enter one day into God's presence and not die Eternally in hell. So if you haven't trusted in this Savior, Jesus' blood cries out to you to repent of your sins, to repent of your own rebellion, your self-rule, and to cry out to forgive, for forgiveness and pardon to God on the basis of Jesus' blood. So any sinner who would turn from their own efforts of good works and would throw themselves purely on the mercy of of God through Jesus' blood can, can receive forgiveness and salvation. Jesus' blood pleads His merit, His protection, His, or His merit, His perfection, His purity. And when we go to meet God, it protects us. But beloved, consider not only that Jesus' blood also provides us an audience in heaven with God even now. Presently, through our our prayers and our pleas for pardon from sin, even now, we see in our verses that Jesus appeared in the presence of God on our behalf, opening the way to God for us presently and sufficiently and ongoingly and permanently. Look down with me at verses 25 to 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, speaking of Jesus. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in every way that the the Old Testament priest's ministry lacked permanent effect... Jesus' ministry fulfills. Where the human priest can only approach God periodically, Jesus approaches effectually, once for all, accomplishing permanent access for God to his, uh, for His people. Where animal sacrifices fall short, Jesus' sacrifice has put sin away for as far as east is from west so that God, when He looks at us, sees the perfection of Jesus instead of our sin. Where the Old Testament priest had to rely on sacrificial blood to protect himself and God's people, only approaching for mercy, Jesus approaches God the Father using His own sufficient blood, not for Himself, but for us. And He pleads mercy for us on the basis of His perfect merit. His boast. Before God appeals to His perfection. And this is all for us. So let's look down at what Jesus then accomplishes when He will appear again. Starting in verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after comes the judgment, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of The bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Jesus' own sacrificial offering stands superior to those of the earthly priests because He opened a way to God for us now and forever. He dismantled sin's power. He has taken its penalty. So for all of us who are in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. But we all know that sin remains. We're still influenced by it, tempted by it. It grieves us. But there will come a day when by another appearing, even sin's presence will flee from us as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus will save us from ever sinning again. Even the possibility that we will sin will cease forever. And on that glorious day, our permanent access to God will finally and fully reach consummation. Through, through, Today, we are free to approach with boldness the throne of God, but in weakness and through suffering. But one day, we will approach with perfect praise, unfettered by selfish motives and unhindered by distractions, unchained by, by doubt or timidity or self-consciousness. May that day come quickly as we await Him, eagerly, expectantly, excitedly. So look down with me, Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice to God, removing our sin completely. What we have already explained, Hebrews ten one through 4, summarizes for us in plain language what the Old Old Testament system under the law was meant to teach. for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why can't animal blood take away sins? He gives us three reasons. Three weaknesses. One, the law is only a shadow and not the true form of things. Two, because those sacrifices never actually perfect the worshiper. And three, because their purpose served not to perfect God's people, but to only remind them constantly of their sin until they would cry out in need for a Savior. This was the law's design and primary purpose. God ordained the animal sacrifices to cause the Old Testament believer to hope for more and to point ahead in faith to one who would finally crush sin's power and restore fellowship with God. So the Old Testament true believer is one who perceived their need for repentance from sin because the animal sacrifice alarmed them to sin's death penalty and their need for a substitute. The true believer, after recognizing their moral bankruptcy towards God, would respond in faith with a broken and contrite heart over sin and offer sacrifices as their appeal to God for forgiveness and salvation. They trusted in God to the degree that He had revealed to them at the time. However, without contrition, without desperation, without faith, the sacrifices in and of themselves accomplished nothing. Let's look down at our text, our next verses. This is a quotation of Psalm 40 from the Greek translation of the Old Testament it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So the point here is that God is more interested in a humble heart that's soft and contrite and ready to obey. Expressed through faith, expressed through the sacrifices, than in the animal, animal itself. The animal sacrifice does nothing. When my wife and I were dating, and this is five years ago this month, um, you know, we we had started talking about getting married, and because we live in D.C. and because people book things up crazily in D.C., we actually booked our uh, reception hall for our wedding before we got engaged, and we kind of kept it a secret from the family and all that. Well, so, of course, the weeks go by, and my plan was to ask her on her birthday, which was April 6th, just a couple of weeks ago. And so she's, she's waiting. Okay, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And, of course, I get the diamond ring and the engagement ring, and then I ask her on her birthday, and she says yes. But, but what if I had gone through all that trouble, I had even gotten her the ring and not asked her? The, the ring itself would have meant nothing. Even at great, great cost to myself, Without, the, without popping the question, the, the engagement rings mean nothing without the engagement and then without the marriage to come. So this is the principle behind the animal sacrifices. What God is looking for is the heart behind it, the faith behind it. So verses 5 and 6, which we read, the Hebrews writer is using them to apply to Jesus. Christ obeyed the will of God the Father, with His whole self. He even offered His own body as the sacrifice that would take away sin completely. So through Jesus' obedience, He made actual, ongoing forgiveness active, not only for those of us who would hear the Gospel and respond in faith in our age, but even for the Old Testament believer who was trusting in God's revealed promises in in their age. Both of us, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints alike, are saved because Jesus' sacrificial death has made forgiveness of sins ultimately effective in the way that the animal sacrifices never could. So let's look at how the Hebrews writer describes this superior effect of Christ's obedient death. Look down with me, verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order to establish the second. Jesus' bodily sacrifice accomplishes what the law could not because he inaugurates a new order where his sacrifice actually, actually achieves certain salvation for the sinner so in jesus death we receive the benefit of one sacrifice in which god would actually derive pleasure because it completed the obedience to god's will that we could not it served as the only sacrifice eminently qualified to remove sin completely so for all who would look to jesus death for forgiveness with a broken and contrite spirit god will grant salvation and rest because we receive His obedience as our own by faith. But Jesus' death not only serves to perfectly break sin's power over us, it also fully accomplishes our perfection. Look down with me and compare. Chapter 1, verse, 10, verse 1 and verse 10. First verse 1, the law can never by the same sacrifice make perfect those who draw near. But then when Jesus steps in, verse Ten, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. The law's weakness is that it possesses no actual effect to produce holiness for the worshiper in and of itself. It's only meant to remind them of sin and to give them a law to obey. But on the other hand, what what did Jesus accomplish? Look down with me at verse 14. Verse 14, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, says, For by a single sacrifice He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Have you ever considered the, the full effect, the fullness of what it meant for you when on the cross Jesus declared, it is finished? If you're a Christian then you understand that you've been justified, you've been made right with God by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the power of God's grace alone, and that apart from your works, anything good that you would do. If a Christian, you understand that. That's the gospel. But have you ever considered that now that you're saved, your walk with Christ, your fight against sin, your growth in holiness is all certain based on the same sacrifice which saved you. Sanctification is the Bible's word for the process through which God takes a sinner, saves them, but then ordains and empowers a life for them where they slowly, increasingly, steadily, progressively look more like Jesus until we meet Him in glory. These verses promise us that the direction of that sanctification, that growth for you is as sure an outcome of your Christian life than the assurance that God saved you once and for all. So if the law stood powerless to actually perfect sinners, Jesus' work stands superior because His death purchased promises and power for you to become more like Him until you die or until He returns. I'm just really jealous for Christians to understand this. Look again at the tenses of the verbs in verses 10 and 14. We have been sanctified, past tense, once for all. He has perfected, past tense, for all time. Those who are being sanctified, present tense, ongoing. This means that for the Christian, the work is already done. God has promised through Jesus' sacrifice to progressively and slowly and continually extract sin from us until we meet Him. Your perfection of beauty, if you're a Christian, has already been fixed by a promise. And it's not based on anything that you've done or will do, but by Jesus, by the very same sacrifice which brought you into God's family in the first place. This is good news, and it, it has massive implications on our Christian life. So God's will wasn't only to remove the stain of sin from His people, but to remove its influence progressively so that we would look more like Jesus. So did Jesus come to die, for example, for all those who would simply say a prayer or walk an aisle or raise a hand once in their life, but then after that evidence no change towards their sin and then still be... Assured heaven? Well, these verses tell us that everyone who is in Christ will definitely grow to look more like Him. Christians are those who will grow to love Jesus more, hate sin more, experience victory over sin increasingly. Of course, not perfectly on this side of the grave. We will be brought to see our sin more for the offense that it is and grow to grieve it more the way that God does and by His power and His enablement and His grace to put it to death. These verses sink a death arrow into the idea of easy believism. Instead, we're called to look through Christ, yes, through struggle and through failure and through setbacks, over and over, and keep looking as He steadily grows us into likeness. Or maybe on the other end of things, maybe you've heard it said that, well, Jesus died to show us that we could achieve moral perfection like He did. Now that we're saved, we're bound to a new yoke where we must constantly recommit our our lives to Christ with stricter discipline or stricter strength of will. Have you ever heard anything like that? Well, these verses preach against that error as well. If we have been perfected, if we are being sanctified... It means that the person who accomplishes our growth in holiness is Jesus and not us. So to be sure, of course, we should set our faces and our wills to obey him and please him and honor him. The Apostle Paul said, I discipline my body for the purpose of godliness. But we do that empowered by the promise that the outcome of our growth is certain. We cannot achieve perfection on this side of the grave But our perfection is kept in heaven for us and it's linked to the perfection of Jesus. It's assured through greater power and more eternal promises than our will alone could ever produce. So in that context, how do we then put to death sin? In our remaining points, that's what we'll consider. Jesus' priestly ministry assures our salvation so that We should draw near to Him with true heart in full assurance of faith. But what does the text tell us Jesus did after He died and rose and ascended to heaven? That was the work that completed His work of atonement. But what did He do next? Look down with me, verse 11. And every priest stands at his service daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So in these verses, Jesus accomplishes yet another thing that the Old Testament priests could never perform. Have you ever noticed in reading the Old Testament what Items in the Old Testament worship are there and what are not there. There's an altar and a lampstand and a table. We read about special clothes for the priests. And there's cups for blood and a bath for washing and an ark, which, as you know, is just a wooden box covered in gold and an ornate lid. And then there are various tools for burning incense, as we read earlier, like bowls and a censer. But there's one item that's conspicuously missing. There's one item whose absence screams the loudest. It's a a chair. There's no chair. There's nowhere for the priest to sit. And the verses tell us why. Look with me. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sits down to signify that His work of atonement is complete. And the priest's work was never complete. Jesus sits down to display that His sacrifice was actually effective for sinners. He sits down because the Father accepts His death penalty as payment, and He sits into the seat of authority next to God the Father at His right hand. He sits in the place of victory, having defeated sin finally and fully, and He waits for the day when He will subdue all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus sits down as the intentional signal that our salvation is secured forever. In sitting down, Jesus' work transitions from dealing with our sin, what he did in his earthly ministry, to eternally serving as our intercessor and faithful high priest before over the household of God. So now his work is to pray for us continually, advocate for us before the Father so that by His power alone, those who are His always will be His. And Jesus' work as priest fundamentally changes our relationship to His commands. Look down with me, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write Them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. What Jesus inaugurates through his work is a new reality for us, where as Christians we live by faith with God's commands tattooed onto our hearts, purifying our consciences. In saving and perfecting us, God has granted us spiritual eyes to sensitize our otherwise callous hearts to make them soft and malleable that we might grieve sin and grow to feel broken hearted when we betray our savior he sharpens our discernment of what is holy versus unholy conduct and he creates in us new desires to please him he transforms our consciences to respond ever in thankfulness to what jesus has done for us he removes the stain of guilt which burden our souls and accused us rightly. He banishes the guilt of our past sin that's been forgiven so that we can walk in freedom to obey Him. And He cleanses our motives from pursuing works self-righteously and instead pr- produces motives in us to do good out of service and love and sacrifice. And Jesus forever advocates us for us before God. And he assures in doing that, that for our wavering consciences, he secures for us steadfast promises of salvation secured and preaches those to us, so that when we approach God, we can also do it with confidence and with boldness. We see promises like this in verses 17 to 18. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So, how are we to live in response to the good work that Jesus has done for us? How are we to respond? Well, the text tells us very clearly. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who has promised is faithful. Do we live the Christian life confident that our sins have been defeated? Or do we walk constantly in guilt, feeling condemned by our daily failures, perhaps never experiencing lasting freedom and victory over, over those Well, the verses here suggest that our confidence comes from promises already purchased and work already accomplished. So listen, meditation on the assurance of salvation that Jesus secured serves as the primary supercharger for our power to defeat sin. When we believe and own and when we know that we stand securely because of Jesus' work, This blessed assurance should warm our affections and fuel our fight because there's certain victory to come. We should discipline ourselves for godliness first by saturating our minds with these precious promises before we ever try to execute a practical plan to fight, though we should follow and do that. This is where we start. This way we'll experience power through spiritual confidence to walk into what has already been won because we're we're secure in our salvation because of the sufficiency of Christ's work. So do we think ourselves too dirty to approach the throne of grace so that we do, do it infrequently or timidly rather than boldly with confident prayer? Well, these verses suggest to us that the key to confident prayer is first to perceive our need for help in our weakness before God and then realize regularly that our way, our access to Him is fixed once for all so that we can go to Him, empowered by a faithful high priest who Himself never ceases to pray for us. Or do we ever seek to atone for our sins, or punish ourselves by performing some sort of penance instead of trusting in the fullness of our forgiveness. Well, we see in these verses that we've been washed with pure water, cleansed of all our sins. Jesus has already done everything needed to assure us that our sins are vanquished so that we should, shouldn't fall back into our own fruitless efforts to pay for them ourselves instead of seeking to appease our consciences with self-payment, we should instead embrace with a true heart that He has purified us from dead works to serve the living God. Do we walk about constantly fearing God's anger, lacking full assurance of faith and instead resting our confidence in however we're feeling at a given time or however our performance, however we assess that? Well, these promises beckon us to hold fast our confession. Why? Because He who has promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, all of these promises, all of them, remain eternally true for God's people because He Himself has said them. The God who creates realities through His very Word. We have assurance because Jesus, the God-man, has opened our way permanently. He has saved us completely and he serves forever as our high priest, constantly pleading his perfection for us and praying for us to be strengthened. So finally, we can experience full assurance of faith because God's Holy Spirit comforts us. He encourages us, reminds us of these precious promises. He woos us in affection towards Christ and speak these, speaks these promises into the every fleshly crevice of our heart that requires the deepest ministry in the time that we need it. So we see the whole trinity of our one God works tire, tirelessly and continuously to ensure forever that God who saves us and sanctifies us will keep us forever until we see Him. Because He who is promised is faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, when we look into Your precious promises purchased for us through Jesus' blood, we marvel. And that's where we want to leave today, marveling at what you have ordained and what Jesus has done and what the Holy Spirit applies for all of us who are in him. So I pray that for those of us who know him, we would be strengthened and encouraged by what your word had for us today. And that for those of us who don't know you, that we would come to realize our neediness before you and repent and believe in Christ for the first time and be saved. This is our prayer and we entrust it into your holy hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.